So as I mentioned, we move this morning from introductory matters into the gospel narrative proper. We leave the prologue behind us and move into the drama of the gospel. We're moving beyond chapters 1 and 2 into the narrative that teaches us about Jesus' earthly ministry. As we do so, it's important that we keep the prologue in view, that we don't lose sight of everything that's happened so far. I believe Matthew even gives us an indicator in the text that he wants us to keep in view his first two chapters, and I'm referring here simply to the timestamp that he gives us in the very first part of verse 1 of chapter 3, in those days, just ponder and think that for a minute, the days that we've been reading of thus far have actually been the days of Jesus' birth and his childhood. We've now hit fast forward and very quickly you'll see we're into the days of Jesus being a man and teaching publicly. So in one sense you might say there is a disconnect in time between chapters 1 and 2 and where we are now in chapters 3 and following, and yet, Matthew says, in those days. He uses the timestamp to put his arm around everything that has come so far and everything that's about to follow, which suggests to us that the first two chapters are not to be forgotten. We have been working through Matthew's introduction and seeing all of the proofs that he gives that Matthew is, excuse me, that Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew makes that claim in the first verse, and then piece by piece, he puts together for us the puzzle to show us what he said is absolutely true. This man is the king, the long-awaited-for king of Israel, who would bring about their hopes and would bring a blessing to the nations. Those proofs, that evidence, in turn constitutes a reason to worship him. It's not simply dry data, but I trust you've seen through the weeks that every single time Matthew gives another line of evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, at the same time, he's prompting us to respond in worship of this man. Now we move on to Jesus' earthly teaching ministry, beginning with John the Baptist, who was a forerunner, and you might say, in one sense, that the first question that Matthew is answering here is the so what of everything that's been accomplished so far. Here are all my proofs that Jesus is the Messiah. You're to worship him. Jesus is the long-awaited-for king of Israel. Then we move into chapter 3, and Matthew lays out the very first implication of Jesus' kingship. If you've ascribed to everything that you've read so far, then there are consequences. If you've bought into everything Matthew has said about Jesus, there are ramifications for your life. The very first implication that Matthew gives us is that we are to repent of our sin. If Jesus is who Matthew said he is, the King of Israel, the long-awaited-for Messiah, we need to respond by repenting of our sin 
Because this Jesus is the bringer of the kingdom. We've sung this morning about God's kingdom. The establishment one day on this earth of God's kingdom. And as we look forward to that, there are implications now. Namely, that we would turn away from all that dishonors the Lord. That we would anchor ourselves to kingdom principles and kingdom values. And we would allow the kingdom to orient our lives and our steps. And turn away from everything that doesn't fall under God's design for his kingdom. One thing that might strike you as I say that is just how confrontational this gospel is. We talk about the gospel as good news, and rightly so. It is good news for mankind. But you see, in chapter 3, verse 1 and following, it is a very confrontational message. The gospel gets up in your face, and it demands things of you immediately. If you are to receive the good news, then there are consequences for the way in which you live your life. That would have been very confrontational for a Jew in Matthew's day reading this book. They had certain expectations of what the Messiah would do that we thought through last week. They had altogether forgotten about the reality of their sin and they were focused almost exclusively on the fact that the Messiah would establish his reign on their behalf, overthrow the Roman government, and everything would be great. And Matthew says, number one, you need to realize that this Messiah is coming in such a way that you have to repent. That's a confrontation for his Jewish readers. It's a confrontation for the agnostic who says, you know, I I just don't think we can really know what God is and, and who he is and what is truth. We're just not given that kind of knowledge. And Matthew says, you can live your life that way, but you have to give an explanation for the man Christ Jesus who calls you to repentance. It's confrontational for the atheist who is a little bit more entrenched in his refusal to accept the truth about Christ and says, I believe there is no God. And Matthew says, you you can live your life that way, but you have to give an account for how you have responded to all of these proofs and the implication that comes from it, namely the fact that you are a sinner that needs to repent. It's also very confrontational for the Christian. The Christian who all too often can focus on what is good about the good news And very conveniently put to one side the responsibilities that it places upon you. Very conveniently form a version of Christianity that doesn't really challenge you in any meaningful way. The Christianity I live is actually very easy. It's very enjoyable. It makes no demands of my life. I don't really think about my sin because God's got that covered. Matthew confronts that type of Christian and says part and parcel of the gospel message is that you would take ownership of your sin, acknowledge it before God, and turn from it. That's what it means to embrace the good news of salvation. And this is the implication with which Matthew leads. 
And so in our text this morning, six verses, we can break it up into four different thoughts, each in some way informing us more about the nature of repentance to which we're called. Four different points as we work through, giving us something of a theology of repentance, beginning very simply with the call, the call to repentance. Matthew says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So these are the very first words recorded of John the Baptist in Matthew's gospel. And it's often the case that the first words recorded of a character in biblical narrative projects something of his ministry, his life, the characteristic features of this man. John will be known as a, as a preacher of repentance and a preacher of the kingdom that is at hand. As he calls people to repentance, what they would have understood by that command is first and foremost a change in their thinking. In the Greco-Roman world, to repent was to change your thoughts about a particular issue. As John said, repent, the first thought that would come to mind is, he's telling me to think differently about something, to choose to change my thoughts on a particular issue. But it doesn't stop there. More than that, drawing on the, the, the Jewish roots of the gospel. In the Old Testament, the heart is mission control. Everything comes from the heart, the thought life, ethics, behavior. To repent doesn't simply mean I'm going to choose to think differently about a topic, but I will think differently to such an extent that my behavior changes. It's actually an all-encompassing plea. Repent, choose to think differently such that your behavior evidences your change of thought. Your feet turn in a different direction because you have changed your thought pattern on a particular issue. Some years ago, I had a weekly demonstration of this truth from one of my kids. We would pick them up from the Sunday school class every Sunday and round the lunch table on that Sunday afternoon, we would just go round and, and, and it was one thing you learned at church today. That's what the conversation was every week. And, and my son, every single week for, it seemed like months, would tell me he learned about repentance. I never thought to go to the Sunday school teachers and just question why week after week they felt burdened to teach my son about this. There was maybe some reason, but nevertheless... Every week, what did you learn today about repentance? And he was maybe four or five at the time, and so I would dare to ask, so, so what does it mean? Tell me. And he wouldn't utter a word, but he would get up from the lunch table. He would walk across the room, and halfway across the room, he would stop, turn around, and walk back. And I would say, you got it. You know what repentance is. He understood fully that it was to change your life's direction. This would have been a shock to Matthew's readers. They're waiting for the Messiah. Their hearts are yearning for the arrival of their king. 
they had throughout the years lost a fully developed sense of the messianic hope as it is presented to us in the Old Testament. We spoke about this last week as we thought about the fact that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. He would be lowly, despised, rejected. That strand of the messianic expectation had been nearly altogether lost, such that they had focused almost exclusively on the expectation that the Messiah would be a military ruler. In Jesus' day, the messianic expectation was nearly exclusively that when the Messiah would come, he would come in military might. He would instantly overthrow the Roman government. He would set up his reign, and the Jewish people would benefit. And Matthew says, the very first thing you need to understand about this Messiah is that you need to repent. He calls you to repentance. Repentance with reference to what? The next part of the the sermon tells us. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven in Matthew's gospel is somewhat synonymous with the kingdom of God. So Matthew's is a very Jewish gospel. He writes predominantly for a Jewish readership. And the Jews did not want to say the name of the Lord for fear of breaking the commandment that teaches us not to blaspheme, not to take the Lord's name in vain. So they would, by uh, an alternative, say the kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of God. The two are near synonyms within Matthew's gospel. So John is announcing that Jesus not only is the Messiah, but the bringer of God's kingdom. He's the king, and he is bringing God's kingdom. This is how we're to understand the miracles of Jesus' ministry. Each miracle is like a window into life in the kingdom. This is what it's like to be in his kingdom. It has not been established yet. We're waiting for Jesus' return to establish that kingdom. But in his first coming, he he was bringing it. The kingdom things were happening around him. And so the repentance is informed by that second half of his sermon. Repent with respect to everything that does not align with God's kingdom. Matthew's not calling us to repent of our diet. He's not asking us to change the way we think about our job. He's not saying, I need you to change your name this week. What he's targeting with this quotation from John the Baptist is everything in your life that does not align with kingdom values. We can summarize it with one word, namely sin. You are to repent with respect to your sin. That is how you need to change your thinking. Think differently about your sin to such a degree that your life evidences a change. A change in thinking, a change in attitude, a change in your heart's disposition. If it was challenging to Matthew's original readers, it is also challenging to many today. So much so that there are lots and lots who would profess faith in Christ and not see this call to repentance as part of the gospel message. There are many that would say, come to Jesus. 
Let him be to you a savior who makes you right with God. And in their articulation of the gospel, there would be no call to repentance. Jesus can be a savior to you without being your authoritative Lord. Or the way that it might play out, you can live your life however you want. Jesus is your savior. You can keep on living however you want. This morning, or I should say this afternoon, we have the privilege of sharing a lunch together with many who are interested and eager to become members of this church. And we praise the Lord for these days of ministry at Bethany and all of the new folks that have joined us. It's my responsibility to make plain that this church believes repentance to be part and parcel of the gospel message. The whole membership process is a time where you get to know who we are as a church and we get to know who you are. And this is not a church that would sweep the doctrine of repentance under the rug. You can't go on living however you want if you're professing Jesus to be your savior. The very first thing that Matthew draws our attention to in the body of his gospel is the command from God that we repent of our sin. As part of that membership process, every new member will have an interview. If your interview is with me, I'll tell you today what some of the questions will be that I'll ask you. I'm telling you ahead of time. One question I always, always want to ask in a membership interview is tell me what has changed in your life since you have become a Christian. Tell me what your life was like before you knew the Lord. And now tell me where there's been some change. Because I want to see that there's been repentance. I want to know that you're taking your sin seriously as the Lord takes it seriously. And I've done membership interviews before where people have struggled to answer that question. And now I'm concerned. Who is Jesus to you? He's just a a friend that makes you feel comfortable. You like what you get from him in terms of all of his benefits. Is he your Lord? Have you thought differently about your sin since professing Jesus as your savior. The first call with which Matthew leads, the implication from seeing Jesus to be the king is that we would repent of our sin. Now, it's not without theological grounds. It's not without good reason that that we're called to repent. And the grounds, point number two, from the call to repent to the, the grounds of repentance... The grounds is seen through this quotation in the book of Isaiah. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, verse 3, for this is he, John the Baptist, who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So you see at the beginning of verse 3, another one of those small words in the English language which wonderfully tells us so much. It is on this basis 
It is for this reason that John preached the message he did. Why did John preach that message? Because, verse 3, Isaiah had first preached another message. So you have to link the two. You have to understand how one leads to the other. Now, we read the text this morning. It's helpful if we would just turn back there for a few minutes to see again Isaiah 40 in its context. Matthew is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40 so as to explain John's ministry and his message. Isaiah 40 is a watershed moment in the book of Isaiah. If you divide Isaiah into two halves, the halfway line is right here. So 1 through 39 has the anticipation of judgment in view. God is telling his people, I'm going to judge you for your persistent sin. And the Assyrians are the first superpower on the stage. And then as you move towards 39, the end of that first half, the Babylonians are brought into view. Then you cross the halfway line into 40, and now Isaiah the prophet projects forward to a time when the people will have been exiled. You were judged by God because of your sin. You are in exile in Babylon. And in that context, Isaiah the prophet says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. In the context of exile... He says, this prophecy is for those people, there is an end to the Lord's discipline. There is a horizon of comfort that I can speak to you. Your warfare is ended. Your iniquity has been dealt with, has been pardoned. And so there is a restoration, a return that is brought into view. Now, the immediate return from Babylon would have been what folks would have understood as they read this, but we know that was not the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. It is not the immediate return from Babylon that these words have in view. We know that because the prophecy tells us something about the nature of this return, and with it comes the lifting up of every valley and the flattening of every mountain. Seismic geographical changes will happen at the time of the fulfillment of this prophecy. And so though the return from Babylon looked very similar, it is not actually the ultimate fulfillment of these words. But rather they have properly understood a future salvation in mind. Yet to be fulfilled... When Jesus comes, there will be a rearrangement of this planet on seismic terms so that the valleys are lifted up and the, valley and the mountains are brought low and the, the, the crooked places are made plain in order to prepare the way for the king. We have not seen anything like this. And so we anticipate this day of salvation that is still yet to come. And Matthew is showing us that Jesus will be the bringer of this kingdom. 
Jesus will be the bringer of this kingdom, the extent of which, the magnitude of which, the glory of which we cannot fathom. And the immediate inference, as Matthew quotes from this text, the immediate inference as it relates to your sin is simply this. You do not want to be found on that day easy with your sin, having never really dealt with your sin on the day that Jesus comes bringing this kingdom. The most immediate inference from Matthew's use of Isaiah is that on the day when this king comes and these things happen, you do not want to be one who is found at odds with kingdom values. This kingdom is going to take over the whole planet. It's not something that will be localized and you can flee over here so as to not have anything to do with it. Every single mountain will be made low. And so wherever you are, you do not want to be someone on that day who is living a life at odds with kingdom values. I promise you, prior to this day, you will want to have dealt with your sin. You will want to have repented of your sin and aligned your life with kingdom ethics so that when this kingdom comes, you rejoice. Now, there's more to it than that. That would be the immediate implication of Matthew's quotation of Isaiah. But now let's just look at one of the details. Verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, reading from Isaiah 40 here, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So Lord there in verse 3, most likely in your Bibles, is capital L-O-R-D. That's the translator's way of representing the covenant name of God, the covenant name that he used for Israel, namely Yahweh. In the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh, the almighty covenant-keeping God that led Israel out of Egypt that has protected them and given to them his covenant. Prepare the way of Yahweh. And then, just to make sure of the fact, he says, make a highway for our God. Now turn back to Matthew and see that quotation in the flow of the narrative. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Wonderfully, Matthew runs to Isaiah 40. He uses Isaiah 40 not simply to tell us that Jesus is the bringer of the kingdom, but so also to assert Jesus is God. You see how Isaiah 40 put Yahweh on display, our God. And Matthew uses that text to speak of Jesus. He says, make Jesus' path straight. And any of Matthew's original readers would have seen what Matthew is doing. This is an outrageous claim. This man, Jesus, is Yahweh. He is the covenant-keeping God of Israel. 
He is the one that drew them out of Israel. He is the one that has been with them in their years in the wilderness. This man is God. And so now there is an added level of implication as it relates to our repentance. Why do you repent of your sin? Because God tells you to. Because God commands that you do not live your life in rebellion to his commands. That is the most foundational reason that you would repent of your sin. For whatever other reason you might give, understand that you have to repent of your sin because God commands that you do not live in such a way that dishonors him. Now there's a problem a theological problem that arises from that which is also addressed by this inference. The problem is you can't repent of your sin. In your own strength, in your own flesh, you can't do anything about your sin. You cannot turn from your sin in any meaningful, lasting way that truly honors the Lord in your own strength. In fact, the truth of the matter is, apart from God's work in your heart, you don't even acknowledge your sin for what it is. You don't even see it for the way it is, so you can't change your thoughts about it. Now, you might feel the misery that your sin brings. I think that is true of every single person in this room. To some degree in our lives, we have felt the misery that comes from our sin. And you might mourn that misery. You might bemoan the fact that your life is the way it is because of what you have done. But that is not the same as saying you then have the ability to change things. Rather, what is true of each and every one of us, apart from God's work of grace in our hearts, is that we keep returning to our sin. We love our sin. And we keep going back to it in sometimes different forms, oftentimes the same sin for a lifetime's worth of living. And you never get over it. So then how do we obey the command to repent? And wonderfully, the answer is given by acknowledging that Jesus is God. This is the the, the key that unlocks the problem of our sin. You look to Jesus and in him you see God. And you see someone who can give you the ability to truly turn away from your sin. As you look to Jesus Christ and you see the God-man. And you put your eyes of faith upon him and not elsewhere. You cast yourself upon Jesus, then and only then are the cords of bondage to your sin finally loosened. And now you can actually repent of your sin. This logic is not familiar to the biblical authors, and in fact, it is all the way through Isaiah. We read from chapter 40. But all the way back in chapter 6, we're introduced to the logic of seeing God in order to deal with our sin. 
the prophet himself has a vision of the Lord and the, the order of the elements are so important. He sees the Lord. That's the first thing that happens. It is only upon seeing the Lord that the prophet acknowledges that he's a sinner. It doesn't happen the other way around. He doesn't say, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And then I saw the Lord. Nobody ever said that. The biblical method, the biblical blueprint is that you see the Lord. And upon seeing the Lord, then Isaiah says, I'm undone. My sin consumes me. And then the Lord cleanses him. Then the Lord gives him a new heart by which he can respond rightly to his sin. And so it must be with us to see Jesus as he truly is, God. And setting our eyes of faith upon him, embracing him as Lord and Savior, he then gives you the ability and the desire to truly turn from your sin. Now, I know that in saying that, it perhaps sounds very easy. I'll just confess in my prayer that Jesus is God. My whole life's going to change as a result. But you understand, even seeing Jesus as God is something that lies out with our ability. Even seeing him as God needs to be a God-given gift in our hearts. Consider the fact as a testimony of just how we are unable to do this. We are unable to make this confession. Consider just as a testimony all of the heresies throughout church history and all of the cults that exist around biblical Christianity. If you do a quick survey of church history, and you note in particular the church councils, when people got together to say, we have got to sort this out, nearly all of them are in response to a misteaching concerning one thing, the nature of Christ. Now, there's been some other heresies along the way, but I would say about 90% of the heresies that have plagued the church throughout its history have centered on the person of Christ. Because in and of ourselves, apart from any working of God's grace in our hearts, we don't want to ascribe to Jesus' deity. And so we find a way to subtly, ever so subtly, twist the truth about him, and now we're off onto a new trajectory, and we just lost the gospel. Or consider the cults that exist around biblical Christianity today. It breaks my heart when the Jehovah Witnesses show up at my door, because unlike other worldly religions, they are leading people to hell with a Bible in their hands. It is one of the saddest things to think that they are so zealous in going door to door, misleading people concerning eternal things with a Bible in their hands. And I will spend as long as they will give me 
hours with them to say, Jesus is God. And you have got to embrace this reality if you are going to do anything about your sin before your creator. And so, with all of that said, just by way of example of the fact you can't even make this confession apart from God's grace in your heart, would you pray that God would open your eyes to see Jesus as God? I want to speak really specifically right now to anyone here that has never dealt with their sin. You might love coming to church, and we love you being here. You might love being here for so many good reasons. But if you haven't dealt with your sin, eternally speaking, you are no better off than anyone else in the world that has vehemently rejected Christ. You can fit in and say the right thing and look the part, but if you haven't dealt with your sin before God... There's no eternal benefit to your coming on a Sunday morning. And so if that is you, please would you pray with me as I have prayed for you this week that God would give you the gift of faith so as to see Jesus as God. Because that is where the doctrine of repentance must begin. Now, John moves on, point three, to talk about the certainty of repentance. Having shown us the call and then the theological grounds, he then ministers to us the certainty with which we must repent. Verse four, now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist And his food was locusts and wild honey. I love this verse. (laughs) Did you ever notice just how out of place this verse is? Matthew's talking about repentance, eternally shaping truths. He's talking about the, the coming of the kingdom in Isaianic terms of mountains being flattened to the ground and valleys being lifted up. He's asserting the deity of Jesus Christ. And then he says, by the way, John had a belt and he ate locusts. It's so out of place. And as a a Bible-studying tip... Have your eyes open for these kind of things. It doesn't sit within the flow of these grand theological truths. So then John is wanting you to ask a question. You ought to ask, why did Matthew tell us this? He felt burdened to let us know of John's dress and his diet. It might be in your Bible that you have a cross-reference to the book of Kings. And that's a good cross-reference. Some of these cross-references are really, really helpful. What Matthew is doing by presenting to us the clothing and the diet of John the Baptist is he is presenting to us this forerunner in the likeness of the prophet Elijah. Elijah. 
If you go back to the book of Kings, you'll see Elijah is described in the same way. And so Matthew wants us to know this man, John, is in the likeness of Elijah. Now, why is that important? Because there is an Old Testament expectation that Elijah the prophet would come again before the Messiah. So Malachi chapter 3 and Malachi chapter 4 in particular teach the truth that Elijah the prophet will come again before the Messiah arrives. And that expectation is testified to by the disciples in Matthew's gospel all the way forward in Matthew 17 when they say to Jesus, the teachers of the law have taught us that Elijah would come first. So Matthew wants to show us John is is fitting in with biblical expectations. Matthew is showing us that John the Baptist was a forerunner. He is showing us that John the Baptist was a forerunner to Jesus and nothing more. Never a truer word did John the Baptist speak when he said, I must decrease that he would increase. John understood himself perfectly. He understood himself in relation to Jesus. And he said, I'm not the main thing. I'm not the centerpiece. I'm not center stage. You see, as you ponder Matthew drawing attention to John's clothing and his diet so as to show us that he's a forerunner, there is in here an implicit warning. Don't latch on to John. Undoubtedly, this would have been a temptation for many in John's day. This strange man emerges out of the wilderness. He has a seemingly very successful ministry immediately. Lots of people are flocking to John. There would have been undoubtedly a temptation to latch on to John and say, I'm all about this guy. Matthew says, don't do it because he is only a forerunner. He is paving the way for Jesus whom you are to worship. He is to be the object of your faith and not John. Now, as I say that, perhaps you're sitting there saying, okay, great, not a problem for me. We didn't show up this morning and sing songs about John the Baptist. We didn't pray prayers giving thanks for John the Baptist. And over fellowship this afternoon, I don't doubt there will be anyone who says, tell me how you first came to know John the Baptist. (laughs) He doesn't feature in our thinking. But just broaden the principle. You can repent of your sins based on all number of things, not necessarily the ministry of John the Baptist. There are many, many reasons why you may have repented of your sins. There are many reasons that you could give for having turned away from something that you know dishonors the Lord. Church, again, could easily function in this way. I love this church. I just want to be accepted by these people. I love having my friends on a Sunday morning. And I know what their lives are like, so I'm going to make sure my life looks like that. In order to get that acceptance, I'll just stop doing this and this and this. And there's my repentance. 
That is not biblical repentance. It is not true repentance. And what you'll see if you wait long enough is is that it is not lasting repentance. That kind of repentance does not last. Seen it before. The young man repents because there's a young girl. A young man that I knew many years ago. He was not a believer, but, but like this young girl. And so, spending time with her, and he, he really wants to be more in her life. And so, sure enough, before you know it, he's now a Christian. Repented of his sin. And things look different. They really do look different. And for a season as well. But the girl doesn't stick around. The relationship doesn't go on. It does end, and so does his repentance. You see, the theological grounds of your repentance will become the substance of your faith. Whatever is the impetus for you turning away from sin, that grounds of your repentance will be the object of your faith. And it is if it is not Jesus, the God-man, then you do not have biblical faith. The call that Matthew issues here to repent from your sin is one that is grounded in the truth concerning Jesus and nothing else. May it be true of all of us that we have turned away from our sin. But only in so much as the theological basis for that turning away is an acknowledgement that Jesus is God and not something else. Not Jesus plus something else and not something else apart from Christ, but Christ alone. That is when there is true, meaningful, lasting repentance in your life. And that leads to the last point, which is the significance of such repentance. We see in verse 5, Jerusalem, all Judea, all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Matthew, I think, here uses hyperbole. We know that not all of Judea and all of the region flocked to John because we'll see in just a few chapters' time that there were many that still opposed Jesus that had not received this baptism. But he's trying to make a point about just how many responded to this sermon, to this call to repent Notice in verses 5 and 6 just how Jewish is Matthew's description of the response. Jerusalem, all Judea, all the region about the Jordan. Possibly there would have been Gentiles that responded to John's call, possibly. But Matthew doesn't draw attention to them. He labors the Jewish response. And that's interesting because... Baptism was a thing before John the Baptist. It was a thing, but not for the Jews. The Jews had no need to be baptized. The only baptism that would have been practiced prior to John's ministry 
was for those who were seeking to come into and be identified with the nation of Israel. So it was possible as a Gentile to say, I want in on this, I want to be considered one of God's people, I declare myself to be no longer a Gentile but a Jew, and you would be baptized to signify that transition. That was, culturally speaking, the baptism that would have been practiced in John's day. So the Jews had no need to be baptized. And yet, Matthew draws attention to the Jewish response. And he says the Jews were coming out, and they, who culturally had no need to be baptized, they were being baptized as a marker of their identification with John's message. They were proclaiming, I am now adhering myself to the ministry of John, specifically his preaching about the Christ and the coming kingdom. And I don't doubt that as many of these went home that day, they would have been ostracized. They would have been left out by their families, by their townsfolk, by their work colleagues and friends for having made such a bold declaration so as to be baptized as a Jew. But it is a testimony to the sincerity of their repentance. They are putting it all on the line by saying, I am in this and in this genuinely. I am in this and I understand there is no going back. That is what their baptism signifies. Now, a note about baptism for us, it is a command in the Christian faith. This wasn't just for the time of John the Baptist, it carries on to this very day. If you've professed faith in Christ, turned away from your sin, Jesus commands you to be baptized. It doesn't effect salvation but it signifies salvation. To be baptized is to say, something's happened in my life. Or more to the point, Jesus has paid for my sins. If you are here this morning as a Christian and have not been baptized, this is a command that comes to you in obedience to Jesus in a demonstration of the work God has done in your life, you should be baptized. More broadly, allow the baptisms in this passage to speak to you today about the permanence of their repentance. Our repentance is not to be light-hearted, temporary, for a season. Christian repentance takes sin seriously and turns from it ongoingly. You don't repent while you're at church and then the next week you're found back in that sin. You don't repent while the going's easy and then when it gets tough you're back there again. True repentance is one that deals with your sin seriously. You turn from it and say, I am done with that now, and I'm never to return. And in order to effect such ongoing, deliberate, and permanent repentance, you bring other people in on your life. You understand that's God's design with the church, is that we would be doing this together. 
Repentance cannot be a lone ranger affair. You can't do this successfully by yourself. You have to bring people in and say, I want to tell you about this in my life. I want to pray with you and ask you to pray for me. And I want to ask that God would affect such permanent repentance in my life that it aligns with the biblical text. And then you build in some accountability. You'll be amazed how far a little accountability in your life will go. You build in new patterns of living. I don't go here and I don't do this. Not that these things in and of themselves are sinful, but I know that they become gateways to this sin. And I'm dealing with my sin seriously. I'm repenting for it. So I'm not going there anymore. I'm making a choice to not do this. And by God's grace, you actually repent of your sin such that whether you're coming into membership or have been in membership for many years, you can always give an answer to the question of how your life is different this year to how it was last year. Tell me what God is doing in your life today. Tell me how you're a different person from the person that was here two years ago, five years ago. Ten years ago, I am continually repenting of my sin by the Lord's grace. As Matthew shows us that Jesus is the king, the very first implication is that we would repent of our sin because he is bringing the kingdom. Let's pray now to close. Our Father, we praise you this morning for John the Baptist, his ministry acting as a forerunner to Jesus Christ, preaching the message that Jesus himself will go on to preach, repent for the kingdom is near. Father, I do pray that we would take this message seriously that we would understand the implication, the most immediate implication that comes from the kingship of Christ is that we would turn from our sin. That we would not live our lives in a way that runs contrary to the principles, the ethics, the teaching about the kingdom. I pray this morning that you would open our eyes to see our sin. And as you bring it into our view, that we would repent. Father, that you would give us the grace to think differently about our sin. To turn from our sin. And to walk in a direction that honors you. I pray this morning for anyone here who has never done this. Father, that you would be gracious to quicken their hearts unto repentance. That they would see Jesus as God. And in seeing his glory, would humbly and genuinely confess their sin before you and turn from it. And I pray as we see this response to John's ministry, so many who were so ready and willing to make a public declaration about their new way of life. I do pray 
that it would be true for all of us. That we are baptized and found to be repenting, turning from our sin, making a beeline for the glory of Christ in our lives. And we pray this in his name. Amen.